0: Corey, what do you think you would do if you were suddenly a billionaire? What would you do with your billions of dollars? How many billions are we talking? I I don't know. I mean, in my mind, once you reach that billionaire mark, it's all kind of the same. But however many billions you want, let's say it's, let's say 50 billion. Ooh, 50
1: billion. You know, honestly, that's such a hard question because I could claim that I would do all of these things and then... Who knows what I would actually do? But I like to believe that I would just give that money away, right? I don't feel right now like there's anything that I would personally want to do with that money. And it actually just sounds incredibly stressful to have to manage it. I'd be more than happy to probably hold on to a couple million and just make sure that I have a comfortable lifestyle for my family. And I wouldn't have to worry about finances in the future, that sort of thing. But billions of dollars just sounds like it would keep me up at night. You know, you and I, Kellen, recently were speaking with a friend and we were in this house that had to be worth like two and a half, three million. And I just found myself so disturbed by just how grandiose it was. You know, they had like two different dishwashers. They had four sets of washers and dryers, a fridge that was like eight feet wide Just things that seemed so unreasonable and so unnecessary. And that whole house was like 3 million. So I think of 50 billion and
0: and it's getting me anxiety just thinking about having that much money. Yeah, it's hard to know what any of us would do with that kind of wealth. But I find it interesting that we keep bringing up billionaires on the podcast, not only because we talk about the huge wealth gap and some major problems in our economic system, but also because several billionaires are involved in the collapse conversation. You look at Elon Musk and everything that he has said about where society's headed and what he claims he's trying to do. You know, we did an episode at one point on Bill Gates' book about the energy crisis. And today we're going to be talking about a book written by another billionaire, Ray Dalio, It's called Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. And he has a lot to say about the direction that we're headed. You know, I heard about this book coming out
1: last year, and I got really excited about it because I do find value about seeing collapse through different people's perspectives. And billionaires especially is a very interesting perspective because they view the world in a very different way than we do their priorities are very different than mine and yet they also have a lot to lose in collapse and it's interesting because these billionaires all have very different perspectives and different priorities you know you, you just talked about Elon Musk and Elon Musk is out here saying he's going to save the world right and all you have to do is invest in me and my products and and we'll take you to this utopia of a world or we'll get you off the world and onto another planet and then you have someone like Bill Gates who claims to be on the more sort of philanthropy route. He's saying he's, you know, donating money for finding ways to have lab grown meat and fixing climate change and trying to help poor parts of the world. Right. And then you have people like Ray Dalio who, you know, this book is nothing new necessarily in in the way that he talks about this, but he has long talked about the future and sort of the cycles that we go through and how he is concerned that the U.S. empire is going to collapse. I don't know a lot about Ray Dalio. You know, I can't speak to his political affiliations or his motives for writing this book or his desires. I, I don't know. I'm not going to try. I'm not out here to defend or condemn. Mostly, I'm just interested and curious about what his research and his studies and all of the research and studies that he paid for to have done for this book, which he has the money to do that. I'm curious to hear what it was that he found. And I will be the first to admit that I did not read this book in its entirety for this episode. Kellen did do the research for this.
0: He read all the way through it. And so I'm I'm really excited to hear what Kellen presents. Yeah, and there is so much to talk about here. I was actually really fascinated by the book. I feel like we could spend 10 episodes on it. I frankly don't think we'll get through everything that we need to in this one episode, so we'll probably break it up into this and the next episode covering Ray Dalio's book. And even then, I'm going to have a little bit of a challenge trying to pick and choose the information to share and how to present it, because there is a lot. It feels like I read an entire textbook. And I'm with you, Corey. I don't know a whole lot about him as a person. I don't know much about his character, about who he is or what he's done. Basically, all I know is what is said about him in the book, in the intro, or maybe it's at the end of the book, it has a little bit about the author it says Ray Dalio has been a global macro investor for nearly 50 years. He's the founder and co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates, an industry leading institutional investment firm that is the largest hedge fund in the world. So I know he's a multi-billionaire and that's his background and you might think, Well, what is it about him that makes him credible? Why should I listen to him if he's got this news about the U.S. empire failing? And he claims in the book, he says it's his professional responsibility to preserve wealth regardless of the environment is how he says it. So his whole skill set, according to him, over the last several decades has been learning to anticipate the future by studying the past. You know, like if X happens, then make Y bet. And so he's done a whole lot of research. Like you said, he's paid to have a lot of research done all on the rise and fall of empires. And he presents a lot of really compelling rationale and and evidence for why we're seeing that the U.S. is in a state of decline and why the future is going to look very different from the present or the past. So just overall,
1: Kellen, do you feel like the book aligned with sort of our views on why collapse will happen? Obviously, I'm I'm guessing it's not a fully collapse aware book in that it's not a summary of our podcast. But do you
0: think the points that he does make, he makes them well? Yeah, good question. I think he makes his points very well. It's interesting because all these different people that we have interviewed and in the books that we've read. It's like they all have one piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I, I tried to make a list of all the things that Ray Dalio talks about. He talks a lot about money and like what causes the devaluation of money, short and long-term debt cycles. He he talks about all the different levers that the central banks and policymakers can pull and why they're incentivized to make the decisions that they make. He talks about different forms of currencies and Patterns of countries devaluing and losing their reserve currency status. He he also talks a lot about conflict. He, He talks about cycles in internal and external conflict that coincide with debt and market cycles. He talks about populism, extremism, bureaucracy, class warfare. He talks about investing. He goes through pretty in depth, you know, all the history of economies and powers and conflicts over the last 500 years. So he he talks about so many things, what he doesn't talk about, he doesn't say anything about climate change, or like resource depletion or biodiversity loss. He doesn't talk about supply chain disruptions or mass migrations. You know, there's so many of the things that we have talked about that he doesn't, but at least some of the things that he we have covered he goes into great detail on basically just economics and conflict. So I guess to get started, let me explain what his claim is. And Corey, I'll be interested to hear from you. I'll just read a few of the statements that I pulled out of the book. And maybe I'll just read these three statements that I've got here in front of me. And I want to hear your thoughts on them. So he says, anyone who studies history can see that no system of government No economic system, no currency, and no empire lasts forever. Yet, almost everyone is surprised and ruined when they fail. The future we encounter is likely to be very different from what most people expect. Yet, most people throughout history have thought, and still think today, that the future will look like a slightly modified version of the recent past. That is because the really big boom periods and the really big bust periods, like many things, come along about once in a lifetime. And so they are surprising unless one has studied the patterns of history over many generations. So I just want to pause there and get your take on that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I have
1: actually read this part of the book and I really resonated with that statement because yeah, I think most people think this time's different, right? And not only that, but they don't understand the impact of last time of what happened because they weren't around, they weren't alive you know we tend to view the world kind of our overton window is is just of the things that we know and the things that we've experienced and you know when the worst thing economically that we've experienced is 2008 we don't understand the great depression right or we don't understand what could be much worse than that and we also like to believe that this time the people in charge have learned and they're doing it better and it's ironic and funny also that you know that he mentions that it always comes as this big surprise and people are devastated and completely unprepared for it when it does happen.
0: Yeah, and it makes sense that that resonates because you and I feel like everything we talk about is accepted by a small minority. We wish more people would wake up to it. And so I think people will be caught off guard as collapse progresses. You know, when, when he talks about conflict and he talks about economies, He pretty early on states three things that really concern him in regards to the U.S. empire. So he says there are huge debts. In fact, you know, he says in 2021, more than $16 trillion of debt was at negative interest rates and an unusually large amount of additional new debt will soon need to be sold to finance deficits. So anyways, he says there are huge debts and zero or near zero interest rates that have led to massive printing of money in the world's three major reserve currencies. That's, that's one of his big concerns. Another is he sees the largest wealth, political, and values gap in roughly a century that have resulted in major political and social conflicts within countries, especially the U.S. And number three, the rising of a new world power, he calls out China to challenge the existing world power, the U.S., And he cites historical examples, we'll dive into it a little bit, but he says these dramatic differences in conditions between the haves and the have-nots, all of that debt that was mentioned, it's likely to result in conflict about how to divide the pie as soon as there's any sort of economic downturn. And he also says if trends continue, China is going to be stronger than the United States in all of the most important ways that an empire becomes dominant. So those are some of his biggest concerns and his biggest claims.
1: And it's interesting to me that he has found those recurring issues over and over again in these cycles. It's not like he's just saying, well, these seem to be issues and, and will probably lead to problems. He's saying these indicators have happened in every one of these cycles historically. And you know, you're getting to the bad part of the cycle. You're about to fall off the cliff when these indicators reach a certain point and we're there. I've had some people reach out to me. We've talked about Ray Dalio a little bit in a bonus episode that we did. And I had, I had someone reach out to me and mention this, and I've seen it mentioned elsewhere, that they feel like Ray doesn't take into consideration necessarily a lot of the other demographic issues that China has and some of the other issues related to climate change and factors that are going to make things really difficult for China. I think that's something to to at least acknowledge and point out. It's obviously impossible to tell the future. I do think that the U.S. faces more hurdles in the future than perhaps China does. And momentum is a big thing, right? China is in a huge momentum shift. They've got a lot of push and acceleration towards increasing their economies, whereas the U.S. has more than stagnated and is kind of falling back. So I think that Ray is right in saying that China is likely going to overtake the US in GDP and other economic indicators in the strength of their currency in, in all of those things. I do agree, though, with others saying that China is likely going to face a very difficult future. Um, and in the end, in, in speaking about global collapse, we'll end up like the rest of us, And I think that's one area where Ray is not necessarily viewing things from our same viewpoint, where we're looking at complete system failure. We're talking about why the entire system is going to come down. And he's focusing on why or how things shift and change in global dynamics, where he's talking about long-term one nation becoming the economic superpower. We're talking about all nations in the
0: end, struggling and failing. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. and so. His contribution here, I think, is really important. But again, it feels like it's just one piece. We're looking at a broader picture, and he's looking more at just power dynamics, economies, and what he expects for the U.S. in particular. But I found it interesting. You know, my undergraduate degree was in a field of social sciences related to family, consumer, human development, and One of the things that I learned about was the human life cycle. And there are all sorts of different models out there about not only the stages in which we progress physically, but especially emotionally and mentally, you know, as we go from adolescence to adulthood, there are ways of thinking about things that become available to us, new stages that we hit and new challenges that we face. So I found a comparison that Ray Dalio makes really interesting. He says that the human life cycle is pretty much the same for everybody, even though no two lives are exactly the same, right? And so he says when you look at debt cycles and disorder cycles, it's it's the same thing that these cycles for societies, even though each one is a little bit different, they all follow a similar pattern. His method was to look at the rise and declines of the major empires and their currencies over the last 500 years. He focused on the three biggest ones, so the U.S. Empire and the U.S. Dollar, which is kind of what's most important now, the British Empire and the British Pound, which was the previous most important one, and the Dutch Empire and the Dutch guilder before that. But then he says he also focused on Germany, France, Russia, Japan, China, and India, And of those six, he gave China the most attention. And he determined that great empires typically lasted about 250 years, give or take 150 years, with big economic debt and political cycles within them lasting about 50 to 100 years. So in terms of what kind of a cadence we can expect, that's what he's pulled out of all of his data. So these are pretty big,
1: bold claims to make. You know, I feel like It's one thing to report on what other people have written and use other studies and case studies. But in this case, Ray Dalio is doing the studies and the research himself, right? He's not just relying on other people's papers or articles. He has come up with this system for verifying this type of information, for testing it. And I'm curious, Kellen, I didn't get this far into the book, but I'm curious if you were able to learn a little bit more about his methods for Determining these things so that he could feel confident enough to make this type of claim.
0: Yeah, he talks about it quite a bit. And, you know, it's a lengthy book. He goes into a lot of detail and he also links out to his website where he says he's got all the charts and all the data. He claims that he collaborated with a lot of experts. He just didn't feel like any of the economists or the historians, you know, were, were telling the full picture. And so, he would pull all this together and he'd go show it to them. And then he'd bring it back and refine it, go show it to them again. But for him, it's all about what he calls determinants. Like he he says, the future isn't unknowable because everything that has happened, everything that will happen has had and will have determinants that make it happen. So he says, if we can understand those determinants, we can understand how the machine works and what will likely be coming at us next. So his process was to look at as many cases as he could and observe how those determinants created the effects and then define them. So he he's come up with this whole model. There's 18 different determinants. He talks about these three big cycles. There's like this big debt, money, capital markets, economic cycle, and you can try to quantify that, put it on a scale between healthy and unhealthy. You've got a big cycle of internal order and disorder and a big cycle of external order and disorder. And then he's got all these determinants of wealth and power, like education, competitiveness, innovation and technology, economic output, share of the world trade, military strength, financial center strength, reserve currency status. And then he throws in these other determinants that he says aren't as quantifiable, Geology, resource allocation, efficiency, acts of nature, infrastructure and investment, character, civility, determination, governance, rule of law, gaps in wealth, opportunity and values. He says it's way too much to just try and balance in your head. He claims that there's some art to it, but you basically put it all into a computer and you can determine where a country, a kingdom, a nation is at on this big cycle. And when I say big cycle, he talks about the archetypical big cycle with a rise, a top and a decline. So like I said, there's a lot here. But that's just kind of the summary of how he claims he got to the conclusions that he arrived at. Yeah, that's fascinating. It definitely sounds like there
1: is a whole lot there. I do remember just from the bit that I read, I read the first, I don't know, 100 pages or so and it seemed like he talked a whole lot about his methods and kind of painstaking detail about how he came about this information. And I thought that was both interesting and annoying. Uh, I guess annoying because I wanted to get to the meat of it, um, but interesting because there definitely was so much there. One thing I'm curious about is you know, he talks about these different stages, he talks about some of the indicators of knowing where you're at and it's apparent that he's insinuating we're at the top of this cycle about to go back down the other side what are some of those indicators i know you mentioned a few but but what are the numbers looking like for us and and how does a society know when they're at the top and when they're sliding
0: yeah it's an excellent question to ask because that's what we care about here right how much trouble are we in if his model is correct and so what i'd like to do i actually took a small portion of the book and i just want to read his description of the top you know a, a nation a country a kingdom an empire but during the rise it's got strong education and work ethic strong leadership they're inventing new technologies they become more productive more competitive they're investing in infrastructure all these things are happening they're developing capital markets They eventually become the world's leading reserve currency and the world's leading financial center. And we've seen that happen with the United States. And you can apply that to any other empire that's come before. But yeah, as I go through this, I just want to read some of the bullet points that he lists out for what a nation looks like that's at the peak, at the top. So he says, as people in the country, which is now rich and powerful, earn more That makes them more expensive and less competitive relative to people in other countries who are willing to work for less. Would you say you see that now, Corey, in the U.S.? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so much of what happens is is us in the U.S. trying to outsource to other nations where people are willing to work for a fraction of the cost, right? Right. He says at the same time, people from other countries naturally copy the methods and technologies of the leading power, which further reduces the leading country's competitiveness. He says, for example, British shipbuilders hired Dutch designers to design better ships that were built by less expensive British workers, making them more competitive, which led the British to rise and the Dutch to decline. So basically all the technology, the methods that we use in the US now get copied by other countries. Do you feel like we see that? Yeah, as well. I feel like we kind of, the U.S. led the way and it's been duplicated and and in many ways better than we did it. Yeah. So we kind of lose our competitive advantage there. He says, also, as people in the leading country become richer, they tend to not work as hard. They enjoy more leisure, pursue the finer and less productive things in life, and at the extreme become decadent. Values change from generation to generation during the rise to the top. From those who had to fight to achieve wealth and power to those who inherited it, the new generation is less battle-hardened, steeped in luxuries, and accustomed to easy life, which makes them more vulnerable to challenges. And this part made me think about our discussions around treating our independence for convenience and how we do live such luxurious lives compared to much of the world, and yet we can't really take care of ourselves if we're forced to. He says, additionally, as people get used to doing well, they increasingly bet on the good times continuing and borrow money to do that, which leads to financial bubbles. You feel like you see a lot of borrowing taking place in the U.S., (laughs) Corey? I think I saw recently that
1: consumer debt was up to like $16 billion. It was something wild. Yeah. So
0: I would say as he's describing these things that it's pretty spot on. He says, Within capitalist systems, financial gains come unevenly, so the wealth gap grows. Wealth gaps are self-reinforcing because rich people use their greater resources to expand their powers. They also influence the political system to their advantage and give greater privileges to their children, like better education, causing the gaps in values, politics, and opportunity to develop between the rich haves and the poor have-nots. Those who are less well-off feel the system is unfair, so resentment grows. And I don't know about you, Corey, but I feel like what we've seen recently in that K-curve, that widening wealth gap has just been astounding. Yeah, absolutely. And when you
1: consider the Gini coefficient and how high that is, and just general sentiment, it does seem that we're at sort of a a peak of sort of distrust
0: in the wealthy and in, in the government. Right. So he goes on to say, during the top... The leading country's financial picture begins to change. Having a reserve currency gives it the exorbitant privilege of being able to borrow more money, which gets it deeper into debt. This boosts the leading empire's spending power over the short term and weakens it over the long run. Inevitably, the country begins borrowing excessively, which contributes to the country building up large debts with foreign lenders. While this boosts spending power over the short term, it weakens the country's financial health and weakens the currency over the longer term. In other words, when borrowing and spending are strong, the empire appears very strong, but its finances are in fact being weakened because the borrowing sustains the country's power beyond its fundamentals by financing both domestic overconsumption and international military conflicts required to maintain the empire. So it's funny because he's describing each of these bullet points as what happens to any empire that's at the top, but it just feels so pointed at the U.S. Right.
1: Yeah. It feels like he just perfectly explained our exact situation. And obviously, you know, partially that's what he's trying to do. That's the point he's trying to make. But if all the research that he did pointed in that direction, it's not to say, oh, he's just finding reasons to believe that he's actually seeing these things having happened in the past and now just viewing them happen again and and being able to kind of
0: see where that's supposed to lead. Right. So he goes on to say, also the cost of maintaining and defending the empire become greater than the revenue it brings in. So having an empire becomes unprofitable. He makes some points about that. He then says the richer countries get into debt by borrowing from poorer countries that save more. That's one of the earliest signs of wealth and power shift. And then he says this started in the United States in the 1980s when it had a per capita income 40 times that of China's and started borrowing from the Chinese who wanted to save in dollars because the dollar was the world's reserve currency. And then the last point he makes here when speaking about the top of this cycle, he says, if the empire begins to run out of new lenders, those holding their currency begin to look to sell and get out rather than to buy, save, lend, and get in. And the strength of the empire begins to fall. So at least for me, as I was reading through the book, that little portion caught my attention because as you and I, Corey, have talked about the financial and economic issues that we're seeing, this seemed to really resonate and and it aligned with what we're seeing here in the US. So then where do we go from here? Does he talk about what sort of the next steps are as far as what we can expect to see happen? Yeah, he he does. In fact, when he talks about not only the rise and the top, but then the decline, he gives some compelling arguments for why we are already declining. So some of the things that signal a decline, he says debt becomes very large. Usually there's economic downturn. And the country has to choose between defaulting on its debts or printing a lot of new money. And they almost always choose to print a lot of new money, which we've definitely seen a lot of that. He says that devalues the currency. It raises inflation. I think we can also say that we're seeing a lot of inflation. <laughs> Painfully so. Um, he says big wealth and value gaps increase and that leads to increases in internal conflict between the rich and the poor and different ethnic, religious, and political groups, which I don't know that we're as far down that road as we anticipate we will get, but I think we definitely have seen an increase in that internal conflict. He, he also mentions that that leads to political extremism that shows up as populism of the left or of the right, and then typically taxes on the rich rise, so the rich start to move their wealth to places and assets and currencies that feel safer. And he calls that like a hollowing out process. Usually at that point, the country outlaws it, the wealthy start to panic, populist leaders emerge. And that's when stuff really breaks into major chaos.
1: Yeah, it certainly seems like outlying the ability to move wealth outside of the country is a big red flag. I'm not wealthy, so I don't, I don't have much money to move around. So is that something that we're already seeing? Or is he expecting that to be something that happens in the future?
0: I mean, he's describing each of these points as what's typical for an empire in decline. So I would assume where he's claiming that the US is in a state of decline, that he's saying, yes, that will happen. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what kind of rules and laws and sanctions are put in place to prohibit somebody from moving their wealth. To different places or assets or currencies that feel safer to them. So it could be happening. I don't know enough about it to be able to give a good answer. So, what I find most interesting about this, all of this, is that he has outlined clear indicators for where a nation or a country or a kingdom or an empire is at in this cycle, this life cycle. And according to him, when he stacks up all the evidence, as he's looked at the last five hundred years. And in some cases, like with China, he went clear back much further than that. He feels like there's a pretty clear picture of where we're at and that we are in a state of decline. He called out those major concerns about all of the huge debts that we have as a nation, the zero or near near zero interest rates, the massive printing of money, the big wealth gaps, political gaps, the rising of a new power. So the more I read through the book the more I just thought he he thinks very systematically and for him everything is about cause and effect. He says there's determinants and there's outcomes and he just paints it as this logical step-by-step process. It's a foregone conclusion for the United States. When we talk next, I'm excited to go over what he describes as the future. But maybe just to end our conversation here, I want to call out a a couple of statements that he makes in the book. One of them is, is the following. He says, History has shown that we shouldn't rely on governments to protect us financially. On the contrary, we should expect most governments to abuse their privileged positions as the creators and users of money and credit for the same reasons that you might commit those abuses if you were in their shoes. That is because no one policymaker owns the whole cycle. Each comes in at one or another part of it and does what is in their interest to do, given their circumstances at the time and what they believe is best, including breaking promises, even though the way they collectively handle the whole cycle is bad. And he hits on this point over and over again, that we are just so short-sighted because we can't see the full cycle. He, he feels like he's done all this research to get a bird's eye view he can see the rise and decline and the rise and decline of empires over time and what causes it what those determinants are but he says people are so surprised when an empire falls they shouldn't be like it's there's so many indicators of it and and people expect their governments to protect them financially they shouldn't be because elected officials are only in for a very short period of time they're only going to do what they need to do at that time. In fact, one statement he makes, he says, when one can manufacture money and credit and pass them out to everyone and make them happy, it's very hard to resist the temptation to do so. It is a classic financial move. Throughout history, rulers have run up debts that won't come due until long after their own reigns are over, leaving it to their successors to pay the bill. And again, because of how short-sighted we are, that, that's why collapse is a big concern. You look at even the issues that he doesn't talk about. You look at climate change, you look at resource depletion, you look at any of the major threats in front of us, and it's because people were focused on their own self-interest in a short period of time without looking down the road at the consequences. So I feel like what he presents here is very compelling, and I'm excited to dive into his thoughts for the future when we have our next conversation. Yeah, thank you for the summary to the beginning of this book. It has been really interesting
1: to hear about his methods, kind of the conclusion that he came to, but I will be really excited for next week to hear what he envisions the future being like, because, you know, our, our version of collapse can be very vague because we don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen next. And he's not stating that he knows exactly what's going to happen, but I will at least be interested to hear what his version of the future looks like. And. You know, it's one thing to say, "Okay, America, the U.S. will no longer be sort of the world power, won't be the empire that it was. China will take that position. But what does that really mean? What does that mean for my well-being? What does that mean for other people in the U.S.? And what does it mean for people globally? So, again, thank you, Kellen. And I look forward to hearing the rest of this next week.